Welcome back and happy 2022, Richard. <laughs> I always wondered what 2022 would look. It seems so far away just a few years ago, you know, but here we are, 2022. It's it's wild. Um, I was I was joking with with somebody about it yesterday that uh, it's unbelievable that it's uh, twenty twenty two, but but it's it's here nonetheless. Here we are. Here we are. Um, the last we keep saying it. The last three years, and the last two years in particular, have sort of been a blur, right? Uh, of, of which we're not finished yet, um, apparently. But um, yeah, they've been a blur, and all of a sudden, here we are in twenty twenty two. Yeah, um, another another new year about to begin. So happy new year to you to as you. well. Um, and, and we're going to continue some of our conversations. We've been talking about children and, and from the perspective of, of them as students. Um, we've been talking about challenges uh, associated with kids over the last few weeks, and we're going to continue that talk today in, in a conversation about uh, oppositional children. Um, you know, there's we get a lot of questions from parents and teachers and lots of different individuals uh, about this idea of oppositional children and oppositional defiant disorder and, and right. things like that. And so, um, you know, I, I think that that's the biggest, one of the biggest dilemmas that, that parents deal with uh, when they're raising kids is how do you, how do they deal with oppositional behavior? That's right. And oppositional behavior begins very, very early. Um, we're, right. we're not talking about, but it, it and it, courses through the child's lifetime. So you have opposition behavior in early childhood, in um, elementary and middle school, and certainly in teenagers, preteens and teenagers. So parents uh, of children of all ages are struggling with this notion of, um, uh, of resistance. They get resistance from their children. Um, in very young children, we see it as um, they refuse to clean up their toys. You know, uh, parents will come in and say, you know, um, my other kids clean up their toys and clean up their messes, but this child just adamantly refuses to clean up her messes. In elementary school, we see things like kids won't stop playing video games, so they refuse to get ready for bed. And of course, in high school and teenagers, um, <laughs> you, they, the most common complaint I get is she won't clean her room. Right. I mean, they just, their teenagers tend to be a little messy. They have a lot of possessions and their rooms are messy and parents are struggling. And also, as we talked about a week or so ago, um, children are refusing to do their schoolwork. Right. And that was, a, that was another issue that uh, elementary, middle and high school students, but especially high school students, because the stakes are so high, they're refusing to do their assignments. They end up with these zeros that then they have to make up uh, they have to make up the zeros at the end of the nine weeks or at the end of a semester. So there's all kinds of ways that kids become oppositional. Uh, and it certainly wasn't something that started during the pandemic. Right. It was made worse than during the pandemic. I think that parents were sort of nonplussed or perhaps panicked when kids were home from school for that last nine weeks right. and, and, and locked down for much of the summer. And parents got... Um, got a good dose of how oppositional children can be. And I remember you and I talking about, you know, stop fighting the video game battle. They don't have anything else to do. Right. Remember when we were telling parents, you know, just it's a battle you're not going to win. Just let them play. Right. Well, and I, and I think that there's a really important piece that we, we have to include here at the very beginning of this conversation, because, um, because it is critical for everything else that we talk about. And that is right. what is oppositional behavior? We have to remember that 
many times, very often, what is considered oppositional behavior is a subjective opinion about what's happening. Because what oppositional behavior suggests is that this the child is overtly, intentionally disobeying, refusing to do what they're, what, you know, that it's a decision that the kid is making to mm-hmm. not comply. Um, right. If a kid forgets to do something, or if, if we forget to do something, we say, we don't say, oh, I, I just forgot to do it. Uh-huh. We don't say, oh, I was oppositional and I refused to do it. We say, no, I forgot mm-hmm. to do it. And so if a kid forgets to do something, that's one thing. But if they flat out refuse to do it, that's something different. And sometimes because the kid doesn't always tell us their true intentions or what's really going on, <laughs> um, sometimes they, they don't they inform us. <laughs> right. Sometimes they say they forgot even when they didn't forget. Um, right. But, but we don't know. And so it, it requires us to make some, um, we, we have to Im- suggest or we have to impose, imply, or we have to, um, you know, sort of project onto the kid what we think was the right. intention or what was going on. And, and that's, that's the, a lot of the problems associated with oppositional behavior. Right, exactly. Because in fact, most kids, we've said this about kids in school, um, most kids, 85, 90% are pretty compliant. I mean, most of the time, most kids are pretty compliant. I mean, we, we frequently see um, um, several, like four or five children in a family. And the, and the parents will say, you know, my other three kids, I didn't do it, but this one is different. And so, so, so most kids don't have this, these characteristics, but there are some kids who it seems almost from birth are just more challenging and they will resist and they will fight back. They will argue, they will be non-compliant. And, um, and that's the group that we're talking about today. And so we say, so, but let's begin with what's normal. Okay. So, so what is your expectation? Is your expectation? Okay. No. So what is normal? Well, there is no normal. Right. I mean, the fact is there, there really is no normal. What we talk about with normal children are, are children who are compliant, who do what we want them, who behave the way we want them to behave. If, if, if a child is doing what the parents consider is acceptable, that child is considered normally developing, okay? The, the child is displaying acceptable behaviors. If they are doing that, if they're doing everything we ask them, then parents tend to compliment the child or give the child rewards they reinforce the child for that behavior. But then each time that a child does something the parent doesn't find acceptable, the parent reach, the parent almost reacts visceral and says, oh, I got to deal with that behavior. I got to stop that behavior right now. My child is doing ABs, doing something that I don't like. And so I have to deal with that behavior. And typically we deal with that behavior by, by um, some kind of punishment, okay? And what parents get into is they get into this recurring cycle of rewarding acceptable behavior and trying to punish unacceptable behavior. So they get into this reward and punish cycle, but it really has no, they do it without any goal in mind. They're not doing it by saying, I have to be at this particular place. And therefore I'm going to address these behaviors. Most parents are simply reacting on a crisis by crisis basis. Well, there is a goal. Um, when a child, when a child is born, when a child enters your life, you have a goal that you have to accomplish 
in the first five years of that child's life. Because by age five, this child has to be following routines with little resistance. Okay, they, you know, it's bedtime, it's bath time, it's time to turn off the TV. And by age five, kids should be following those routines. Right. By age five, there should be no more tantrums. By age five, they should clean up their own messes. They should play well with others. And most of the time, they should follow the instructions that you give them because by age five, they have to go to kindergarten. Well, and, and I think that there's a really another, again, a really important piece, a really important caveat here. And that is um, they sh- by age five, kids should be able to do all those things. But they only can do those things if we teach them how to do those things. And that and that's a and that's an issue sometimes that we we see, you know, when kids enter school at five or when we have, you know, when parents bring their kids to us, um, you know, young kids to us um, to try to help out with it. What we find is that the the kids have never really been taught how to how, how to emotionally regulate, how to clean up their mess, how to play with other uh, play with others. You know, how many times, Richard, have we seen, you know, three, four five year old kids when they go to school? That's really the first time that they've ever been in a room with other kids. Exactly. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you grow up those first five years of your life and everyone around you is an adult who, you know, let's be honest, who tends to cater to the kid who, sure. you know, yeah. understands in ways that other kids their age doesn't don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, that kid is never is not going to have the, had the opportunity to learn how to interact with other kids. That's right. Right. Um, they, you're right. We we have to teach them to be ready for kindergarten. I right. mean, these are these are skills the kids need to learn that they bring to kindergarten so that they are successful in school, regardless of what kindergarten they go to. But the other thing that happens besides teaching, the other thing that happens. It's about age two and a half, uh, two, two and a half, three. Um, kids go through this change. Okay. Now there's a biological reason for it, but uh, we call it the terrible twos. Mm-hmm. All right. And, um, but still, even though kids enter this um, stage of independence seeking and resistance, there's no need to panic. Um, they're not, they're not trying to take control. They're, 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 manipulating us a little to get what they want, but that's not, they're not trying to take control. Um, They're not being disobedient or defiant. They're just being, this is, they're just doing what a two-year-old, I mean, mean, a two-year-old doesn't have a lot of arrows in her quiver. Um, They they don't have a lot of behaviors. They're they're not able to really manipulate the world um, the way it sometimes feels. So they're not being disobedient or defiant. They're just being and they're not misbehaving. They're just behaving. They behave. This is how kids who are two and a half or three, this is how they behave. Right. And, in, 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 you know, kids behave. There, there is uh, every behavior that a child or a kid demonstrates, every, right. every behavior that a kid does is appropriate in some context. Right. In, <laughs> in somewhere in their life, everything that they do Oh, it's okay to do that here. It's not okay right. to do that here. It's okay to, you know, scream and shout and, and do all that kind of stuff on outside or on the playground. It's not okay to do that when it's bedtime. Um, so, so kids have to, again, they have to have the opportunities to learn where appropriate behavior is and where 
it, where it's not okay to do those behaviors. And, and uh, that comes from learning or that comes from teaching the direct mm-hmm. instruction. Sometimes you, sometimes you have to teach a kid directly. No, we don't do that in here. We can do that out there right. but not in here. Right. Um, and sometimes we have to do that over and over and over and over again mm-hmm. for the kid really to get it. But, right. but it's just behavior. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not misbehavior. It's just behavior. Right. Right. And, and, but it's adults. We're the ones who, who we say that the child is being disobedient or disrespectful or um, defiant. Those two and a half and three-year-old kids don't behave. It's for, to them, it's not any of those things. Those are adult ideas. Those are adult constructs. Right. We attribute that to children. Right. I say that child is being disobedient. That child is being disrespectful. No, that's that's an adult language, and I'm attributing intent to the child. You you mentioned intent earlier. That you know the kid doesn't tell us. Um, um, they don't tell us what their intention is. They're just trying to get their needs met, and they do whatever they need to do to get their needs met. So just because we make an attribution, it doesn't make it real. Okay. Right. And I think kids have the urge. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think something that we have to be careful of is, is sometimes sometimes we plant those seeds. Like, Richard, yeah. it just came to me just as you were just talking about that, because how many times have you seen a patient, and, and, and I'll see a kid, who um, very young, and you ask him whether, oh, I did that on, I did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So um, how do you know that? You know, how do you know, you know, you're, you're four, five, six years old. How do you know what on mm-hmm. On purpose means like and what it comes down to is it's just that that's what mom and dad always say right well you did that on purpose okay so tell me you asked the kid you know tell me what that means what does it mean that you did it on purpose that's what mom and dad say (laughs) mom mom, mom says i did it on purpose yeah or you tell the typical three-year-old you're being defiant (laughs) okay now there's a label for what i just did but it has no moral value to a three-year-old because they don't understand defiance right Right. I mean, okay, if that's what you call, if that's what you call this, you know, you call this an apple and you call that a car, this is defiance, but there's no moral value to that. Okay. And so the other thing that we need to be careful about is that kids behavior sort of comes out of children, whether it's verbal behavior or physical behavior and um, kids learn to walk and they learn to talk and we don't attach any moral value to those things. Right. Well, kids also learn to get their needs met, but kids don't attach a moral value to any of these things. It's just what they do. It, it's, it's part of their uh, learning how to become human. Okay. So it's just the stuff that happens at these ages. What we have to do as parents is we have to make sure that the stuff they do isn't dangerous, mm-hmm. that it's not destructive, and that what they do is acceptable. Okay, that that it's okay to do this, it's not okay to do that. Okay. Um, So at some point, we need the adults need to be in charge because we have to keep the kids safe and we have to keep, you know, um, the possession safe, that sort of stuff. And so, but what does it mean to be in charge? All right. And I think that's that's where parents start to go a little bit askew when kids hit the terrible twos or threes is the parents kind of hit a panic button and say, wait a minute, I need to gain control. I need to be in charge. Right. But what does be in charge mean? Yeah. And, and I think of this, you know, we have sort of three points here that we're going to make with, with what does it mean to be in charge? And 
and I, I liken it to what most adults want from their employer, right? So yeah. the first thing is you, you want oh. your employer to be available. You don't want them to hover. You don't want mm-hmm. them to be like on top of you and like always around, but you want them to be available. So if you have a question, you can go ask. And so right. children want to, need to know that an adult is available, mm-hmm. not hovering. Right. The second thing is they have to keep you safe. Right. right. You, you know, you want to make sure that, again, you know, if you if we, you know, relate this to to work, we want our bo- to know that our boss is making sure that that we're safe, that, that our job, that there's some security in, in our work environment and those kinds right. of things. Right. We don't want them to be overprotective to where, you know, it's like you have to check in all the time and you have to do right. all these different things, but you want it to be safe, but not overprotective. And again, it's the same thing with kids. They, they need to know that they're safe. Um, but we don't, we don't have to, you know, wrap them in bubble wrap to make sure that they're, you know, to overprotect them that way. Right, right. <laughs> I, I know a parent who did that to her son one time. He was, uh, it was during SARS, I think it was during the SARS crisis, oh. like 10 years ago. And he, she literally wrapped him in plastic because he was going to take an airplane flight somewhere to, uh, for a tournament or something. And they literally wrapped that kid in plastic. I, I had forgotten that, but he yeah. was sitting in the airport with this plastic envelope um, on. Good grief. <laughs> the third is that um, children need to know that the parent <laughs> keeps their world organized and predictable. Right. But at the same time, not over controlling. Right. Um, you know, we want our bosses to make sure that, you know, that our work our work environment is organized that our day is, is predictable and things like that. We don't want them to micromanage our life. Right. Right. We want to know that our, our world is organized and predictable. So um, again, kids need the same thing. And so we, we have these three things that they, that the parent is available, that the parent is going to keep them safe and that the parent right. keeps their world and life organized and predictable. Um, that's what, that's, that's what it means to be in charge. That's what it means to be. Right. That's what a parent mm-hmm. needs to be doing. That's right. It doesn't being in charge doesn't mean that I'm more powerful than you and I can control you or I can make you mind or I, and I can prove it to you. I can show you who's in charge. Um, that's not going to work with a preschooler and it's certainly not going to work with a teenager. Right. That's not how this works. Being in charge is providing the three things that we talked about earlier. Okay. Yeah. So the challenge is how do you do that? And still allow the child to develop. How do, how, do you, how do you make sure that you're in charge of things to keep everybody safe and to keep everything predictable in a way that allows the child to continue developing these skills that he or she is going to need for kindergarten? Right. Yeah. And, and in part, we need to do, we do that by, you know, sort of like when a kid is learning to ride a bicycle, you know, we have training wheels on the back so that. Um, you know, initially the training wheels are all the way down on the ground. So in, F, in essence, it's a, it's a four wheeler, you know, there's, there's two right. wheels line and then there's two on the sides to keep it in, in place. Right. Um, but as the child gets better and they gain more control, we can raise those, those training wheels up a little bit. So they have to balance themselves. It'll catch them, but they have right. to balance themselves a little bit. And so right. it's the same way with, with all of this behavior with that um, independent seeking with the, with the insistence and resistance and the, the desire to be self-sufficient that they start having at a very early age. Um, we do that in the same way. We, we provide those training wheels and, right. and we allow them to, you know, they're going to wobble. They're going to make right. some mistakes, right. but, but we provide that structure for them. 
Right. And what the training wheels do is they help us to develop routines. Because if you're not developing routines in your household, if and that's our first order of business is to develop routines. Because if you're not developing routines, you are dealing with a child on a crisis by crisis, right. uh, catastrophe by catastrophe, incident by incident basis. That's going to wear you out and it's going to wear the child out. So your first task with in raising children is to develop these very predictable routines, just routine ways of doing things. I happened to grow up in a family that went to church every Sunday. Uh, they were, I'm, the, my family was Catholic and there was never any doubt in my entire life where I was going to be at nine o'clock on a Sunday. I never, I never questioned it. I never thought about it. I never considered it. It's just something we did every Sunday at nine o'clock, not at 10 o'clock, not at four o'clock at nine o'clock every Sunday. I could tell you exactly where I was going to be. Right. So it became a routine that we never argued about. Okay. And so the first set of training wheels are biological. Right. Because, because that's what routines do is routines help us develop a biological rhythm. Um, exactly. Because when we think about, you know, the big routines like sleep routines, um, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up, um, hygiene routines, you know, taking care of your body, you know, you know right. bathing and cleaning and all of those kinds of things, mm -hmm. eating. Um, it, all of these routines, you know, develop a, you know, help encourage a rhythm in our body that, that keeps us regulated. Um, if your body, your body quickly learns that I eat at this time, this time, this time, and I get snacks at these times, <laughs> their body learns that. Um, if it's willy nilly and it's just lunch could be any time, you know, dinner could be any time it makes it more difficult for the child's body to regulate and be, you know, be able to predict when it's going to be um, right. fed again. That's right. So our first job is to get the biological training wheels, get, get a rhythm to eating and sleeping and feeding and parent time and free time. Okay. Then the second is human training wheels, becoming a human. Um, Ross Green wrote a book recently. It's entitled um, Raising Human Beings. And so this is sort of that second category of uh, what are the what are what are the human training wheels? And essentially, there are two, right? Yeah. And the first is uh, is to the child needs to get under some type of s stimulus control. Yeah, what we call stimulus control. Right. And and that is they need to know um, they need to know how to control how they respond to things that happen around them. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, because a lot of things happen around kids. Mm -hmm. and, and when a parent says, honey, it's time to stop playing the video game because we have to get ready for bed, that the child hears that and complies. No, they're not going to, most kids are not going to comply immediately. They're going to say, well, let me finish this game or let me do the, let me do. That's okay because at least they're responding appropriately and they're doing as they're asked to do. Honey, it's time to come to the dinner table now. And the child, you know, might huff and puff, but they come to the dinner table. That's being under stimulus control. Okay. Oh, it's it, need to be under stimulus control because it's part of keeping them safe. Don't touch that. Don't drink that. Don't cross that street. Right. And again, routines help with that because if a kid knows that every day at 6 PM we're having right. dinner, it's mm -hmm. not like it's a surprise that, okay, no, it's, it's, this is what time we have dinner every night. Um, right. So I'm asking you to get off the game because every night at this time, I'm asking you to get off the game because it's time to eat dinner. 
And if you do it every day for a couple of years, it will become just the way you do things. Right. right. And the more inconsistent you are, the more of a battle that's going to end up to end up. That's right. Right. Um, and the other thing, the second thing, the second human training wheels is respect for others. Right. That, that whatever I, and, and there are so many things that come under this, um, but no matter how brilliant or how beautiful or how talented your child is, he or she is going to have to learn to live cooperative, cooperatively with others. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, at some point, they are going, that child is going to leave the house. Mm -hmm. okay? You're not going to raise a hermit who never leaves the house. So whether it's preschool, kindergarten, elementary school, college, graduate school, or, or, or moving to another state, eventually the child's going to leave the house and they have to be able to live cooperatively with other people. That means they have to have some respect for others. And, and that kind of brings us into the, the third set of training wheels, which is the cultural training wheels. And, and that is, you know, in many ways, that's, there's going to be some parts of that that's regional. Right. Because in, in some areas of the country uh, or of the world, uh, because people go all over, um, there are certain things that are acceptable and some things that are not acceptable. That's right. Required mm -hmm. and some things that are not required. Here in the South, for example, um, you know, I grew up with the expectation that everything was yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, ma'am, no, 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 sir. Um, please and thank you. That those were all required those all are, the time. Those are regional expectations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we didn't have them up north. Uh, right. Nobody ever told us we had to do that. But but you do. If you there was a uh, uh, when Barack Obama was president, I remember one time he said that if he had a son, he would have to teach him certain things to keep him safe. Okay, right. so. Uh, and there, there are cultural um, sort of um, um, nationality differences, you know, that you're expected to obey. And so the, these are the, the third set of training wheels are these um, cultural, national, racial, um, regional differences that we have to teach our children um, that, that they, they also have to be compliant with those things. To, again, to be safe and to function in the society where you're living. Right. Absolutely. So, so get it, that's get, that gets you ready. These are the training wheels, get you ready for kindergarten. Right. But if this isn't happening, if your child is pushing back, if your child is still having tantrums, if your child is trying to wrest control of the decision-making process from you, um, then how do I know that this, that what my child is doing is normal or do, or am I dealing with something else? Right. And sometimes you, you, you do have to, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but um, sometimes you, you have to get some support for that. Because again, you know, if you go back to some of the early things that we were saying in this podcast, um, what your child is doing may not be normal, but again, if you haven't taught the behavior, then it's just a learning process. It's a, it's a learning issue. It's a, it's a lack of exposure type of issue. Right. Um, but somebody may need to tell the parent that, you know, somebody may need to help you understand, you know, what have you done to help your kid understand that this is what the expectation is? Oh, well, he should just know because his brothers and sisters know. No, not necessarily, because if his brothers and sisters sort of always does it for them, for him, um, then when it's his expectation to do it, he doesn't know what to do because somebody else has already done that, always done that for him, you know? So it's, 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 you know, sometimes you need that 
uh, extra set of eyes to look at it and say, well, you know, we need to figure out a different way to learn. Right. Um, but it's tough sometimes to know what is normal versus what is a problem. That's right. Because any child, any child uh, can be occasionally cranky or irritable or defiant. Right. I mean, it's just too little sleep, uh, lack of structure, um, yeah. kids who are abused, neglected. Um, any of these things can create um, um, irritability and, and defiance in a child. Um, but parenting, and I think we forget this. I think even the, even the best parents are, parenting is something that begins at birth and continues forever. Right. I mean, it's just, you're constantly, constantly, constantly being a parent. But if you're teaching your child these things, it is a day in day out routine. Um, and it just goes on forever. And the, the, the other thing is about parenting is that it has to be collaborative. Um, especially for these most resistant kids. You're not going to overpower them. You're not going to punish them into submission. You have to use a collaborative approach. So at a very early age, whether no matter what you're dealing with, with your preschooler, uh, put away the power suit because it is not going to work. This has to be a collaborative process. Now, at some point we say, well, is it normal or not? And at some point we're going to enter the world of mental illness, we're gonna we're gonna be so far uh, removed from normal, whatever normal is. We're gonna be so far removed from normal that we find ourselves in the world of mental illness. Okay, and so these are the kids who are the the high powered resistors. These are the kids who are really really fighting back, struggling, defiant, um, maybe even destructive. They destroy toys. They destroy the toys of their siblings, okay? So when we get into that world, um, we enter the world of mental illness. Not to say your child is mentally ill. We're just saying that we enter the world of mental illness. And that when we do that, parents begin to wonder, am I a bad parent? Have I done something wrong? Um, Or is my child just strong-willed or stubborn? Am I just dealing with a very difficult temperament, a very stubborn child. Or the third question then is, is there really something wrong with my child? Right. Okay. Now, it might be your parenting. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of ways that I screwed up as a parent. Yeah. And I'm sure every parent would say, yeah, that, yeah, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, because you can err on in either direction, you know, right. if you, Give your, if you're too lenient and you give your child too much freedom and too much decision-making, that can backfire on you. Um, right. If you err on the side of overly being overly restricted and restrictive and, and controlling, that can lead to problems. So, right. Right. Um, you know, if, if there's chaos in the home, if, there's, if the parent doesn't match their parenting style to the needs and the mm-hmm. temperament of the kid, you know, all right. of these things can cause can cause problems. That's right. Um, some parents expect too much of their children. Mm-hmm. They, they, or they expect too little or they expect too much, okay? Some, some parents don't uh, require to, the children to clean up their own messes. Well, child's not gonna do it automatically and they're not gonna do it at 15 if they weren't doing it at three, okay? And so, so some parents um, think they're just because their children are verbal that they understand everything the parent is saying and they don't. They, 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 they think the child has all these verbal skills, 
but kids don't, especially uh, an emotional vocabulary. Right. Um, if your house lacks routines, if it's a chaotic household, okay? So yeah, there are a bunch of reasons why it might be bad parenting. But there are also two conditions um, that are in DSM-5 that render children alarmingly defiant and oppositional. Right. Very, yeah, very difficult uh, to manage. And, um, and the first is oppositional defiant disorder. And that's, that's probably one that most people are, are, are aware of. Um, and, and oppositional defiant disorder, again, suggests that the child is willfully, intentionally disobedient. Right. Um, mm -hmm. that, and, and this is sort of a, a pervasive pattern of behavior that's present in, in many settings. Um, where the kid is just defiant and refuses, uh, argumentative, maybe vindictive. Um, but uh, and oppositional defiant disorder kind of goes along with um, another one called conduct disorder. Um, but right. uh, that's usually oftentimes seen in older kids, uh, teenagers and stuff. Right. But, um, oppositional defiant disorder, you know, is a challenging condition because it suggests that the child is being willfully disobedient. Right. And, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Um, just because your child is defiant, right. is defiant, doesn't mean your child meets diagnostic criteria. Okay. Right. So you have to be careful about this diagnosis and, and it has to be made by a very thoughtful, careful uh, clinician who, who understands is very clear about the difference between what is normal childhood resistance, right. normal childhood defiance, and what is pathological. It's a huge difference. And there's, there's, um, there are no medications for this. I mean, it's, it's not a condition that you can medicate. There's no lab test. It's a clinical judgment, but it must be made very thoughtfully because all kids, all preschoolers will occasionally be defiant. Right. And, and, and it, I'm glad that you talked about how important it is to be, um, it, it requires vigilance on the, on the part of the, the clinician because- right. You know, your kid refusing to come, you know, to stop playing his video games to come to dinner. Okay, that might be oppositional behavior, but he may genuinely forgot to have forgotten to do his homework. Right. That's not an oppositional behavior, but if we're not careful, we're going to go ahead and clump that in with oppositional as well, because, right. oh, well, you know, that's an expectation and he's not meeting that expectation. But again, just because he forgot something doesn't mean that it's willfully oppositional. And that's so right. it takes a lot of sort of teasing apart these little pieces because you don't, if there's a problem, you want to identify the problem and, and, and manage the problem. But if there's not a problem or if it's a different problem, we need to address it differently. Right, right. And the other thing we, we, we always want to remember when we get into diagnosis is where's the impairment? Right. You know, a child can be a little, even a lot defiant but still functions in the family and goes to school and is able to handle everything. Yeah, it's a little bit difficult, but there's no true impairment. We're talking about kids who, who don't have friends, who are not invited to play dates or they're not invited back to play dates, or they take so much attention that parents find themselves spending all their time attending to this one child, okay? So we're also looking for some level of impairment when we talk about opposition defiant disorder, okay? And the, the other diagnosis that, that we, we tend to see is, is a, a bit of a 
is a newer diagnosis. Right. This mm-hmm. came out in, in a, I was thinking that it just came out just recently in the DSM-5, <laughs> which was 2013. It's almost nine years ago. But right. um, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, DMDD, um, it, it falls into a different category, whereas oppositional defined disorder falls into this diagnostic group um, of characterized by behavior disorders and, and, and things like that. DMDD falls into the category of, of mood-related disorders. Mood um, disorder. and, and this is um, a condition where the child is chronically irritable um, and, and easily triggered, easily angered, um, and so the, and the kid will have frequent, intense um, temper tantrums. Um, in reactions to things that seem very minor or sometimes, you know, it's, again, it's just an emotional overreaction. And, and the word dysregulation in the, in the title is, is exactly it. It's like they cannot regulate their emotions. And instead of becoming depressed and, and sort of reverting inward with a lot of mm-hmm. those behaviors, they're reverting outward. Right. Um, and, and they are demonstrating that irritability and agitation um, very, very much so on an outward basis. So everybody can right. see. And almost, con- I mean, it, 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 there's almost no relenting. I mean, parents will come in and, and, and I'll say, well, how many, how many of these emotional meltdowns does she have every week? And the parents, oh, she has them every day. Uh, right. She has two or three a day. Um, and, and you're right, little things set them off. You know, it, it could be the seam in a sock or the tag in a shirt, or somebody said no. Or somebody said, no, you can't do that. Or you have to stop playing the video game and come to the table. And they're not pouty. They're not whiny. They have a full-blown temper tantrum, a full-blown emotional meltdown. So it's it's not uh, consistent with what, what's going on in the environment. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exaggerated uh, response. Okay. Um, the other th- interesting thing about DMDD is it's a diagnosis that we don't make until the child is six. Um, so there's this, there's supposed to, there's this pattern, right. But you get four-year-olds, you get three or four-year-olds who say, man, this looks like DMDD. Right. Okay. And you're tempted to make that diagnosis. And sometimes we do, um, with caution, with conditions, but, um, yeah, sometimes you can, these four or five-year-old kids just look like they have DMDD because it, because they express it over many years. Right. So these are chronic conditions that are expressed over years. Right. And, and, you know, and we think of when a parent sees a kid um, presenting with these behaviors, the temptation is to punish. Right. That's right. Where they go is to punish. And what we're, what we would encourage you to do is, is to avoid that urge, Um, avoid that temptation because a, it's not going to get you anywhere. Um, no. Punishment for, for kids like this, um, kids with these kinds of difficulties, punishment doesn't work. Um, and in fact, if you have a child with DMDD, what you tend to notice is that trying to punish them makes it worse. It escalates right. their behaviors and it, and it um, prolongs the, those, those mm-hmm. severe temper tantrums, which can last hours. Um, right. We've had kids who, who will have these temper tantrums for hours. Right. Right. And, and punishment is, I'm glad you brought up punishment because frequently parents will say, well, I've tried every, I've tried punishing him. I've tried time out and I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this. So there must be something wrong with my child. Not yet. It might be that the approaches you're using 
mm. are not working with this child. Uh, that's why you need a thoughtful clinician who has a background in this area where they can sort of tease out these various factors, because it may just be that you're using the wrong technique with this kid. Uh, you don't punish these kids. I can tell you, if you try to punish, it's not going to work. They're going to fight harder. Okay. Right. And so it could, it, it could be that a parent is just using um, an incorrect approach. Okay. And it's not necessarily that they're fighting back as a power struggle. Um, again, you know, we, we could get into the biology of this, but maybe we'll do that at, at a different time. Mm -hmm. But um, they're, they're fighting back and it's biologically, it's, it's chemically driven. Um, so it's not like the kid is saying, oh, you want to try to punish me. They may, <laughs> it's so difficult because they may say those words. They may say, oh, you think this or you think that. It's a, um, you know, again, we'll have to get into the biology about it uh, another day. But, um, but, but again, the punishment isn't going to be effective. It, it, don't yeah. get into the power struggle. Um, right. You have to, you have to shift to a different approach. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, but so, what we know with these kids is that the normal ways of raising children don't work with these kids. They didn't get the memo. They didn't absorb their culture. They didn't absorb the family rituals uh, like most kids do. Um, these kids continue to resist and they continue to challenge parents. So um, what you're left with is that you have to arrange your house and your life and your schedule because you have this child right. in your home. Right. Um, if your child had a physical illness, mm -hmm you would adjust accordingly if your child needed a uh, breathing treatments or your child needed special medications or your child has any kind of a physical condition, you would adjust your life accordingly. Right. Okay. Right. It's no different with a mental illness. You adjust your life accordingly. Right. So we, we have to parent the child we have, not, not the child we thought we were going to get or what we wanted. Right. And so we adjust our life by recognizing that there's some things that we just may not be able to do. We may not be able to leave our kid with a babysitter. Mm -hmm. We may not be able to go out and, and have a couple's night it, it, as regularly or as easily as, um, as maybe other couples can. That's right. They're, they're just, if you have a child with one of these mental illnesses, you, you may, you're going to have to change some things about your life. And there may be some things you simply can't do. I mean, you can't take the family to a restaurant because you know that this child is going to create a scene. Right. So it's something you just can't do. Um, so you have to be willing to make these adjustments. So first of all, think of it, think of a mental illness as a physical illness. Second, raise the child you have, not the child you want. Okay. Third, be ready to make these adjustments of things you might not be able to do. Okay. So that's changing that's changing what you do as a parent to make your life more manageable. You right. can't keep pounding on the kid because it's not, you're asking the child to change and the child's not going to change. So right. the adult has to make these changes. So that's first three. Right. The next the thing we have to do is, is focus on prevention. Um, exactly. prevention is the key. Once, especially with DMDD, once the, once the escalation, once the tantrum begins, Ride the storm. It's, it's, that's what's going to happen. Um, right. so the idea is, you know, identifying and, and really, you know, looking at your life, maybe as even as a study, you know, analyzing 
when are these behaviors most likely to occur? When are the, um, when is the problem going to happen? Um, and it may not be real specific things, but it may, you know, Richard, we used to, one of the things we did early in our work together was we need to just work with parents just to find a different word besides no, because right. for some reason the word no triggers these kids like, no right. Business. but sometimes if you find a different way to ex- explain the same exact thing, mm-hmm. you more words perhaps, but not, just not using the word no, um, it can change the outcome. So prevention right. is the key. Right, that's right. And what's the second key? De-escalation. You have to learn how to de-escalate. Right. You, as the parent, as well as the kid, have to That's de-escalate. right. It's a two-part process. You have to keep yourself under control because if you start to get aroused and agitated, guess what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Your child's going to meet you and exceed you. Right. Okay? right. And so... Prevention is the first key. Learning how to de-escalate your child is the second key. And to do that is the third part of this, which is you're going to have to stay closer to this child. Um, Your presence is is absolutely essential for a couple of reasons. Number one, you have to catch this child doing the things you don't want him or her to do. Okay, so you need to be around. Okay. And you need to stop it. You need to de-escalate before it gets um, too hot, before it gets too crazy. Right. As soon as you see that starting to go up, you need to go ahead and do something, implement that de-escalation strategy to nip it right away. That's right. And and look, everybody in the family needs to be a part of this. So siblings need to be a part of this. Um, You know, extended family has to have to be involved because, you know, many times siblings are the triggers for the kid's Right. You know, That's right. everybody has to be a part of it. That's right. Siblings can't be, shouldn't be protected. Well, they, their safety should be ensured, right. but they shouldn't be, they should be educated about this sibling mm-hmm. and they should be brought into the intervention, the collaborative process, right. and they need to understand what's going on. And again, if, if, if a child, if one of the children had a physical illness, all the kids would rally around and, and acknowledge that. No different with a mental illness. Right. All the other siblings need to rally around and become part of the solution. Right. Yeah. So uh, we recognize that this this takes a lot of patience and a lot of understanding and a lot of work. Um, you know, parents need to have support. They need to have a, a good coach or or mentor or therapist or, or counselor of some sort to right. to help them through this process because. It is challenging. It is difficult when you have a child with some of these difficulties. It is really hard to manage on the day to day. And so, you know, get the help you need. It, you know, rally the family, um, everyone to, mm-hmm. to work together um, to prevent some of these issues from happening. And you know, work on a daily basis again to to help the child learn some of these skills that they need to regulate and to control right. and to manage. And the other thing, and and you mentioned this earlier um, in a couple of different contexts, if we enter the world of mental illness, if we acknowledge that, yes, this child has a mental illness, notice is not mentally ill, this child has a mental illness, that's involuntary deviance. This is not intentional behavior, no matter how it feels. It's not intentional behavior. These are kids who cannot regulate. They can't self-regulate. Um, and so they need the support of the adults in their lives right. 
This is not going to go on forever. It's, it's going to get better as the child gets older. Okay, the difficult, the early years are more difficult. Uh, we, we, we see that all the time with preschool and kindergarten children. Um, uh, it can be very, very difficult when they get to school. Um, it's more difficult in the early years. It gets better as the child's brain matures. And by the time you have a late teenager, most of this stuff has gone away. Okay, you're, you're not going to be dealing with it forever. But you are going to be dealing with it for years. It's a long-term project. So the first thing is it's involuntary deviance. The second thing is the normal ways of raising children don't work with these kids. So you're going to have to come up with other approaches. And we're going to talk about other approaches probably in another podcast. Yeah, yeah, we, we need to address that because that's I think that's what we need um, is to, to think of some of those other approaches. So. Right. All right. Well, I think that's it. I think that's it for today. So, um, yeah. Welcome again to 2022. Yes. What is, yeah, 2022. Absolutely. So on February 22nd, it'll be a fun day for everybody. Two, 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 two. All the twos. Right. Yep. That'll happen a couple of times in February. In the meantime, um, we are all, uh, <laughs> we're all hoping for a, a better year. Mm-hmm. Um, with less illness around and, and less anger. So let's uh, do what we can. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, that's it for today. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid. <laughs>